At around the hour mark of this episode, we spend a few minutes talking about residential schools. You may want to fast forward through this section if you find it uh, triggering or uncomfortable. Thanks so much. Welcome to another episode of the Bayer League Podcast. As always, I'm, I'm your host, Ben Ramon. On the podcast today, we us. have Dr. Lisa Aguilar, Eva Sam, and Brianna Gilecini. Thanks for coming on the show, folks. So excited to get this one going. It's uh, it's, it's It's been a, lo- a long one in the making for both scheduling and, uh, and just... Uh, so many different things, and so I'm, I'm stoked to have this conversation. Uh, before we start, though, I just want to uh, acknowledge that I'm producing this podcast on the traditional unceded ter- territories of the Klam and Klahus, Homoko, and Comox First Nation, through the keepers of this land, reaching from the center of the Coast Salish Territory on the eastern coast of Vancouver Island across to Sayayin, known by settler colonizers as Texada Island, named after, strangely enough, a Spanish conqueror who just kind of sailed by the island. I don't know if he just saw his boat and said, let's call the island that. Um, he never even came here. Uh, but I arrived here uninvited and I participate and benefit from the colonial system. And finally, uh, uh, I uh, across the Sunshine Coast in the village of Sliamen, where the government of the Tlaman nation is situated. That's kind of the one that's closest to me. Um, adjacent to the city, uh, the community of Slaman is the city of Powell River, uh, where I'll be actually taking the ferry to go to the doctor today, uh, named after uh, Israel Powell, who was the first superintendent of the Department of Indian Affairs for the province of BC, where he pursued policies aimed at assimilating indigenous peoples in British Columbia into Euro-Canadian society. Uh, early in his career, Powell took up the cause of what he viewed as the imperative to educate and civilize indigenous children. He supported residential schools to turn Indigenous children into useful members of society. Uh, In his annual report in 1882, he wrote to the provincial government, encouraging them to establish these residential schools in BC. Um, The the, the useful members of society were Powell's words. Um, There's there's actually a group um, of settlers and Tlaman members who are fighting to have the name of Powell River changed to Tisquat, which is the original name of the community uh, before settlers arrived, uh, to much racist pushback from locals. Uh, lastly, I just want to honor and celebrate the Tlaman Nation uh, who, are, who have launched, uh, I think it was on July 19th, they launched three canoes into the 2023 tribal journey paddle to Muckleshoot uh, with the same destination uh, as, as can, with canoes as far away as Hawaii. Uh, about 25 Tlaman members are paddling 450 kilometers in 12 days, ending in, in Muckleshoot, kind of close to Tacoma, Washington. Uh, so, uh, uh, Travel Journeys Paddle to Muckleshoot by, is a revival uh, of their ancient trade routes. Introducing yourselves. Uh, tell me a little about yourselves, uh, where you're from, what you do, who you are. Lisa, you want to start? Yeah, I can start. Um, so I'm a citizen of MHA Nation, which is... Um, hmm a nation made up of three tribes, the Mandan, Hidatsa, and Arikara peoples in North Dakota. So our nation is called the Fort Berthold Indian Reservation, and I sort of grew up between there and Chicago. Um, That's on my mom's side, and she was adopted into that nation, um, and her birth parents are Lakota and Dakota. Um, And then my dad is from Mexico. He actually comes from some indigenous people there called the Tepehuan people, um, I don't know much about them, but hmm. I recently, in the past like several years, kind of learned 
um, the name and so doing some research on um, But currently, I'm on the lands of the Osheti Shakawi here in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So that's the Dakota, Lakota, Nakota folks, um, but predominantly Dakota here in Minneapolis and Minnesota, kind of more broadly. Right on, right on. Um, so cool. I'm a, an right assistant on. professor in the school psychology program at the University of Minnesota. That's Yeah, day. Uh, good morning. Brianna Kinlachini, yes, yeah. initially. And you can have a chin, my days, gauging dash a chain. I am a Dene woman and mother. I have two young children. Um, I was born on the Dene nation. Um, and then I moved to a small urban city maybe around the age of five. And so I grew up mostly in a, in a predominantly white community um, with some, um, with some Hispanic population and some um, native and indigenous populations. Um, so we all, the, we all knew each other. Um, and so that was nice. And then mm. more recently, um, I moved out here to Southern California, and I am currently on Kumeyaay Nation. Um, I studied here for my graduate program at San Diego State University for school psychology. I recently graduated, um, and so that's that's it's still like surreal to me. Um, but now I'm a school psychologist in a district, and I'll be serving mm. um, a diverse group of students, but but um, a lot of them will be Native and Indigenous, so. So I'm, ex I'm excited to to be able to Amazing. meet them and work with them on, in the community. Uh, awesome. um, yeah. yeah, I think all right, that's Kiva. all I want to share. Uh, congratulations, Brianna. Thank that's you. exciting. Hamadak Yapi, Wamanu Khali Imati Yapi, Nawashitu Chajaki Kiva Sam, Pejuta Haka Imataha. I am Kiva. My Lakota name is Wamanu Khali, which means little seashell woman. I am a citizen of the Oglala Sioux tribe, um, currently in uh, Kyle, South Dakota, my homeland, which means Medicine Root District, um, and the, I'm from the Oglala Band. Um, I'm currently uh, finishing up my dissertation for my doctoral degree in school psychology at the University of South Dakota, and am the school psychologist down here in Kyle at Little Wound School, serving uh, predominantly Oglala and other Indigenous students in the area. Um, thank you guys all for having me. I look forward to this conversation. Oh, that's amazing. So uh, originally, I reached out to Lisa, uh, who I found first through uh, just you know some internet searches, looking for looking to just hear from more kind of Indigenous voices in in the fields in kind of these helping fields. I, I work in behavior analysis, and I, I mentioned I think I mentioned to to Lisa that you know there there aren't there's very few uh, indigenous uh, behavior analysts, at least those that um, um, you know, have made themselves known publicly. Uh, I know of literally three in Canada, and I know that two of them didn't even know of each other until I had one of them on the podcast. So there's, there, uh, um, I had one, I've actually had one, another one indigenous behavior analyst who's just Mesoamerican um, and uh, kind of, she might have some, connections to some of the areas you were talking about, Lisa. Um, but beyond that, nothing. And so, I, you know, I, I've been wanting to kind of expand the podcast sort of beyond behavior analysis anyway. And uh, 
uh, started looking into sort of indigenous voices and psychology and you know surprise not surprisingly there's not a lot of those either uh, we'll probably get into some of that as well uh, but I found Lisa and, and her work looked really cool and some of the stuff she's doing around kind of decolonizing school psych and indigenizing educational spaces and so I, I wanted to kind of have that conversation but then Lisa you suggested uh, it might be a, a fun idea to bring on Brianna and Kiva um, because the uh, of the they were students at one point um, still are in some ways what's sort of the connection between the three of you how, how did you all meet and 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 why did you want to bring these two on Lisa uh, well, I wanted to bring them on, I think, mostly because I feel like I don't do many things without being in community with folks. And um, yeah, I'm sure the reason you found me is because I'm the only Native school um, psychologist who's a faculty member. And so there probably weren't other results mm. on your search. Um, yeah. Uh, so there's not a critical mass of us, but also like I, I really respect and like love what these two folks are doing not only because mm. they're like up and coming in our field, but like having native women sort of lead a lot of these conversations, I think is vitally important. Um, yeah. I think I got to know Kiva through the indigenous American subcommittee, if I'm not wrong. Mm. Like, student at the time and I maybe fresh assistant professor or something. And we sort of just connected right away. We both have, um, Lakota heritage and I think that's something when you see another person like that you just instantly connect on on that level especially with such a small community yeah. of us and then I met Brianna through the, those same channels so she was a, a member or a, a student of Carol Robinson Zinyartus who's at San Diego State University and he's done a lot to mentor many many Native practitioners in the field um, mm. she I became co-chair of that subcommittee and then Kiva was sort of the the um, student rep um, my first year and then sort of transitioned out and then Brianna became that and she will be for another year or so and then we've sort of just been doing a lot of things together since then for about a year or so um, so I've known them you know for a couple of years now it's been yeah awesome just to see and learn from them. No, that's great uh, you, you just mentioned I didn't realize so you, you, uh, is it right that you, you are the only indigenous school psychology <laughs> professor yeah, when you say it out loud, it's, it sounds weird because I always have to question, like, is that accurate? But I, I'm pretty sure it's accurate. Yeah. Um, Eastern yeah. School Psychology. Um, I haven't met another person. Um, they're definitely in, like, mm. fields for sure. Um, sure. But not necessarily, like, in our field in a school psych program. Um, yeah. And so... And so the programs that the Brianna and Kiva were in were not run by um, um, Indigenous school psychs. Um, so, well, first off, why is that? Why, why do you think you're the only one? Um, I think higher education certainly mirrors what happens in K through 12 schools, right? I think that um, there's some gatekeeping, there's push out. Um, and then as a result of a lot of sort of negative um circumstances folks don't have the ability or the access or the resources to to first graduate high school go to college and then go to graduate school um that takes a lot of just like mental stamina as well when you're facing a lot of yeah. sort of system 
Um, and not to say that I'm better or worse at anybody in any of those areas, but um, there's a lot of things I think stacked against indigenous folks as, as a whole. Um, but that for school psychology specifically, I think there are, there's a lot of representation and visibility in other areas. Um, certainly psychology, I think of like clinical and counseling psych has a lot more folks um, in, in those different subfields. Yeah. But then, and obviously this is as a professor, there's there, I mean, obviously I've got three right here, but there's, there's more than one. There's, there, there, there's a few indigenous school psychologists. Are there, are there, are there, are there a lot of them or do you have any idea what sort of the, the numbers might be? Um, on the latest surveys, we don't have a good indication. Um, mm. But currently our subcommittee is doing a survey that's specifically targeted at native practitioners. So we're hoping to get some numbers and that will, um, our plan is to put that out in the fall after we go yeah. that. Um, but if I can kind of speculate on who's attending meetings and, and how consistent mm. people come, it's, I know anywhere from like 10 to 20, right? I don't know if Brianna, yeah. how accurate that sounds to you, but I think just based on participation with um, the subcommittee. Mm-hmm. And 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 uh, yeah and and yeah, super low. I mean, I was talking to um, uh, was it uh, Tira Bland from uh, the the Black School Psychology Network, and uh, I think she was saying it was something like three point nine percent of school psychologists are black, um, um, and uh, but that's 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 way more than. 10 or 20. Um, so it must be a, 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 a pretty low number. So um, we're kind of, we're going to dive into sort of recruitment and, and retention, I think at some point here, and, and maybe we can learn, learn why that's going on. But first, I'd, I'd love to know kind of why, why y'all wanted to be school psychologists. Brianna, do you want to? Are you a solopreneur running your business alone and need help getting more exposure to your target audience while growing your brand? At Beale Marketing Group, we specialize in delivering comprehensive marketing solutions tailored to your unique needs. Our team of seasoned experts excels in crafting creative strategies that captivate your target audience, build brand authority, generate high-quality leads, and streamline your business processes. Whether you're seeking a brand makeover, effective lead generation, or a plug-and-play solution that takes care of everything for you, we have you covered. Services can include strategy sessions, video editing, social media management, brand board development, and even a virtual assistant. When you choose Beale Marketing Group, you're partnering with a team of passionate professionals who treat your business as our own. We go above and beyond to understand your goals, target audience, and unique challenges to craft tailor-made strategies that produce remarkable results. Schedule your free discovery call today at bmgfreeconsult.com. That's bmgfreeconsult.com. If you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this episode, you'll need to enter the three secret words at www.cbiconsultants.com forward slash shop. The first secret word is reconciliation. Yeah, I was just thinking about it. I feel like Mm. every time I'm asked that question, I have to think about it just as far as like, 
the, the mm. answer is different in spaces that I that I enter. And so, especially with like where I am in my own um, journey of like, growth and healing mm. and um, grief and things like that. So uh, I, I feel like the, uh, the roles that a school psychologist has is, uh, is uh, almost like a extension of who I am mm. and in my culture, in my traditions. Like I grew, I grew up with my grandparents, um, my aunts and uncles, my cousins, my nieces and nephews, like being in community with each other and uh, having relationships with one another, um, good and bad, positive and negative. Um, and we worked through those, uh, um, bad times and negative times and, uh, had more of the good times and celebrated successes but all the domains that we are trained in through school psychology and through NASC I feel like I had a lot of those values inherently mm -hmm. before I even knew what school psychology was and so it just feels like a, it's a very dynamic field and although there is pain sometimes in it um I'm able to reframe that. And like you shared earlier, like Kalisa is a big, and Kiva is a big um, advocate for indigenizing education and school psychology. But that's really how I feel like I'm also practicing and also learning and hearing from them and also trying to grow into the role of just being me and, and uh, um, knowing that who I am is okay in these spaces uh, without letting Western perspectives and um, mm. colonial perspectives like seep in as much as possible. But when I was growing up through education, it was always a weird feeling. Like I never, I, I felt like I belonged sometimes I felt, but I felt more like mm. I didn't belong and I was just trying to be someone who I wasn't. And so I didn't have a lot of that affirmation of who I was as I was going through um, K through 12, 12th grade. Um, but also in, in college, maybe my first year, I was like, okay, I, I think I want to be a teacher. I think I, I like, I know I want to be in education because I want to be able to like give back and also um, show that I'm, I'm native and I'm, am going to be in education. And there's someone if, I, if there's another native mm. or indigenous child, like I want them to see that I'm, I'm there for them. Um, and then my, and then my academic mm. advisor was like asking me all these questions about what I wanted to do. And, and I never had to think about the future. I feel like I was almost like in survival mode a lot of the time. And I was like, okay, what are we doing today? What are we doing tomorrow? Like, what are we doing this weekend? Mm. It wasn't ever like, what are we doing for the future as far as like, like goal setting for like short term or long term goal setting. And so when I it was an undergrad, when my academic advisor was like, okay, you want to be in education, you want to um, study child development, you want to study clinical psychology, you want to do all these things. And I feel like she kind of just mm. tailored um, her name is Dr. Sue Cross, and she, she, um, it almost felt like she tailored mm. my courses with mm. what I was 
sharing with her. Like she was really hearing what I was saying. And so she was giving these suggestions. And then um, I did all the things that I, I studied all the things mm-hmm. that I wanted to study. And I was like, I don't want to pick just one. And so, so then I heard from my aunt about mm. um, Alvina Charlie, who um, is a school psychologist and went through San Diego State University's program. And they, when I started looking up at what school psychology was, it was like mm. literally all the things that I wanted to do in one profession. And so that was kind of like my introduction to it. And and I feel like I'm also indecisive. So I was like, this is perfect. Like I can do everything that I want to do in one. Um, and so like every who I am and where I came from and the values that I had and have um, were already there. And school psychology is, is just a way that I can just practice that and be who, who I am. So that was kind of like why I chose it. And it also chose me in, in some way, you know? So. Yeah. No, that's that's cool. You know, because I've talked to a few school psychs now, and, you know, I think one of the issues in recruitment and retention or recruitment in particular is that no one ever, no one's ever heard of school psych, it seems, you know, you've heard of psychology and and, and if you grow up kind of wanting to help people in some way, um, you know, you, you either think about being a counselor uh, or a psychologist, you kind of think they're the same thing. You probably think a psychiatrist is the same thing too. Um, you know, it's sort of hard to separate them, but but there's no sort of conversation about school psychology. I know when I was going to school, I didn't even know, I, I didn't know what a school psychologist was. I think I think every, everybody was called a guidance counselor and probably some of them might've been school psychologists. Um, and so it sounds like your advisor is is you know first off was pretty awesome um uh to sort of you know figure that out for you and, and make that happen but i imagine for many other folks there's not even a way for them to find school psych um and so you know I, I'm, I'm glad you were able to and i imagine we'll kind of get into some of that soon yeah i just want to echo a little bit about what Keep we're what about you? talking about in terms of like I feel like in some ways school psych also chose me. Um, very similar mm. in terms of like growing up. I grew up on the reservation in Pine Ridge um, and Kyle in my community. Um, I was raised by my grandparents and they were very big on education as a tool to kind of promote tribal sovereignty, right? And so that is very much how I was raised. Like I grew up going to council meetings, treaty meetings, and it was always with the idea of like your education should provide for the better of our nation and our people. And so that was ingrained very early. And initially my plan, like from the time of six years old until my senior year in college was I'm going to go to law school. I'm going to be an attorney and I'm going to advocate for, you know, tribal rights and sovereignty. And during my senior year, I met with a recruiter from Teach for America. And I had a Teach for America teacher, um, Ms. Dina Wagner, now Dina around him, um, who, you know, taught my, was my physical science. And that was the first time I was really challenged academically within the reservation school system. Um, she held me accountable. She pushed me to high expectations. And so, you know, I really thought about like the impact she had on me. And I said, you know, I can do Teach for America. And I, you know, taught high school social studies. I came back to my my um, former high school that I attended. And, um, you know, during that time, a lot of what we we're talking about was relating to, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion. We we're talking about culturally responsive teaching and practice. And then 
things that, you know, in some of my education classes in college, I took a couple and we, you know, those weren't conversations we were having. And so through that process, learning more about how important it is to have representation, how important it is for our students to be able to see themselves in these different various roles. Is our community needs every role, right? We need doctors, we need dentists, we need attorneys, we need teachers, we need, you know, cosmetologists, everything that you need. We need that in our area. And so, you know, as a teacher, it was really about like, how do I take what they want to do and what their strengths are and help empower and help them kind of see some of the beauty that we have here? Because I think, you know, for myself, definitely growing up and for some of the students I taught, it, it was always like, why would we come back here? Because all we could see is the um, the negatives, right? And so it took me leaving and going and experiencing different things to think like, no, why can't we have that here? And so I, you know, taught for a couple of years. And then I realized that a lot of my students with disabilities, I questioned, you know, do they really have a learning disability or is it that nobody sat down and broke things down with them and really worked with them to help them understand? Um, because a lot of my students who would start the year off saying, oh, I don't read, I'm in special ed, would by the end of the year would be the ones raising their hands, volunteering to read out loud, sharing. You know, I had a student who, you know, didn't really have a lot of goals um, his junior year and senior year. He came and asked, do you think I can go to college? And I said, of course you can if that's what you want and asked me to write a recommendation. And so for me, it was how, well, how come our, you know, special education students, how do we help them as well? And so then I moved into a behavioral interventionist role. And during that, I also saw like how, how important and impactful some of mm. our, you know, adverse life experiences and how that impacts our ability to stay focused in school, to, um, you know, engage in, to, you know, a lot of executive functioning skills. And so really looking at like, well, how does trauma play a factor in this? Not only currently, but historically as well. And how does that relationship impact education? And so I started looking, I did that role for three years and started looking more into, okay, well, who are our school sites? And in a five county area, we didn't have one. All of these counties, um, most of which were reservations, were having to contract over a hundred miles away um, just to kind of provide some of the basic services that other places have. And so then it's like, okay, I'm wow. going to go do that and I will come back. And that's kind of, you know, I finished my internship up last year. I'm back in my community this year. And mm -hmm. the goal is always to how, you know, help empower so that, you know, mm -hmm. our students can see that one, like, you know, doctors growing up. And so, you know, that's why it's also important for me to like push through and get my doctorate so that, they also can see what is possible and, you know, ideally, hopefully see them being able to come back and start to build so that our nations grow and prosper in the ways that our ancestors wanted it to happen. Oh, that's awesome. What, um, yeah, you know, you so I work on your doctorate, cultural responsive practices, engagement, um, my dissertation, is going to be looking at um, flourishing and um, family resiliency as a mediator to adverse childhood experiences. Um, one, and it's using a large data set, which we know for indigenous populations, we're usually underrepresented mm. and we don't really make it into the analyses because we're such a small population. Um, so I'll be focusing on the National Children's Health Survey data, but only focusing on indigenous populations. 
There is a lack of diversity when it comes to educational material depicting black children in the field of applied behavior analysis. Human Expressions gives black and brown children realistic and detailed images of kids who look like them, modeling everyday skills that may be difficult for them to communicate or express. At Human Expressions, the benefits of representation for black and brown kids in educational curricula are clear. Increased self-esteem, reducing stereotypes, and increased validation and support. To learn more, go to www.humanexpressions.org. That's human, H-U-E-M-A-N, expressions.org. The second secret word is truth. Really cool, really cool. And and are you, uh, sorry, Brianna, are you also doing the doctorate stuff or are you, are you taking a break? What, what are you up I'm to? I'm going to be a school psychologist for a few years and we'll reevaluate yeah. then. <laughs> yeah, nice. Nice. And so what about you, Lisa? How, 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 how'd you get here? Um, I'm trying to get um, Brianna to come to Minnesota. So <laughs> she'll nice. be in a doctorate program here in, in several years. Um Similar to Kiva, my grandpa and um, my aunties were all always really big in education. So I saw them from a young age. So I had an incarcerated parent. So I grew up with um, like in and out of foster care, but then also mostly with my grandpa where I saw my aunties um, do really well in high school and like always homework. Mm. And it was very um pressed like into us that you need to do homework first before you do anything else so to me it was like okay and if I want to be like my aunties who I think are just the most amazing people in the world I really got to be smart I gotta like do my homework I gotta go to school right I gotta get good grades all of these things so that sort of messaging just kind of stayed with me um and it wasn't until probably I my dad got custody of me maybe when I was like 12 11 or 12 years old and we had to see I think a court mandated psychologist. And I remember feeling very validated and seen. And I, I had this understanding that this psychologist was trying to make sure that I was like mentally well and okay, where I was going big transition from North Dakota to Chicago. Um, And since then I was like, I want to do that because I have always felt a, an immense need to like care for my brothers, especially with um, my mom sort of being in and out of, of jail And I was like, that's what I want to do because I think that's how I can care for kids. And so I sort of just navigated high school with that in mind um, and always had like, got to do well, you know, got to, got to have balance, played a bunch of sports. But then when I got to college, I made, I knew I wanted to major in psych. So I was one of those people that like declared your major right away, even though, you know, they tell you wait a couple of years and try stuff out. I was like, no, I know I want to be a psych major. Uh, and then I applied for the McNair Scholars Program and I ended up getting it. And so that sort of opened up this world of research to me that I actually can do it. And it's not people who are not like me that do it only. Uh, and through that program, I was exposed to a school psychology graduate student from the University of Wisconsin, Madison, because I did my undergrad um, in Wisconsin. And my advisor, similar to Brianna's, was like, yeah, you want to work with kids and, you know, clinical psych programs are really hard to get into, but it seems like you don't really want to do like the clinical stuff. It seems like you just kind of want to work with kids, but then also you have this interest in education in different ways. And so pushed me to apply Mm -hmm. to things and help me prepare like my my graduate um, applications and things like that. And then I ended up getting into a couple of places and chose Mizzou. Um, And I 
I'm grateful that I went to Mizzou, although it was it was tough because I was the only Native student, I think probably like the first Native student to graduate from that program. Um, but it taught me a lot in terms of I went to school there when the protests were happening with the concerned student 1950. I don't know if you heard of those, but it was pretty big here no. in the U.S. where um, <clears throat> Black students on our campus were protesting um, essentially against really oppressive like policies and things that were like everyday actions, uh, students, racism, right. That was, that were happening. And it was through like my, 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 um, community there friends with being a lot friends with many like black folks, black graduate students and learning a lot from them that I then started to learn more about what does activism look like in indigenous communities? Because I grew up in, a family that was very much influenced by Catholicism. And it wasn't until I was older that they sort of got out of that and sort of moved towards more like traditional ways and and spirituality and and, and those sorts of things. So Mm. I got all of that sort of religious aspect of it too, in addition to those educational sort of messages. Um, So I had to do a lot of learning on my own in graduate school and then decided for my dissertation that I wanted to actually take my lived experience and try to turn that into a study um, that I felt was really meaningful. So I looked at um, an indigenous focused curriculum that the state of North Dakota had created in conjunction with the four um, nations in North Dakota and basically evaluated that that intervention on um, students in a really small tribal school, their cultural identity. Um, And just Mm -hmm. doing that project, like I had my mom... um, (laughs) like drive to data collection with me and like I trained her on how to observe students and like how to use the forms. And like, it was on my home reservation and um, you know, I had to go through like approval for the council and stuff, but because it was just an easier process and it felt really cool to be like working with my tribe. Um, That sort of solidified my place in school psychology because I felt like the easy part was getting into the program, but then like staying in the program and not wanting to leave the program and not wanting to leave. At one point I was like, I just, I want to do social work because I don't think school psychology can, can give indigenous people liberation. Um, I stuck Mm. with it. And now I see now that I have more sort of like independence and um, there are more people doing this work like Brown and Kiba um, that give me hope for the field. And there are other folks who are non-Native, but also non-white that are doing very similar work too. And so that's also affirming and it kind of keeps nourishing me in terms of like wanting to to keep going on in the field. Um, so I ended up graduating. I did a, a internship in Alaska and stayed there for a year to practice, then went to Indiana University and it wasn't a good fit. Um, I came here and kind of similar to to Kiva, I feel like I'm home in many ways because I do come from Dakota people. And although I wasn't um, necessarily raised on the reservation, so I don't have like as probably deep of, of a pool to go back there, I do still feel like I'm home because I'm around people who kind of have the same same cultural values and traditions and kind of way of looking at things. So um, yeah, that's how I got into school psychology and that's sort of why I'm staying here. I feel like I've, I've found a good fit in terms of place to work and also being close close to home and kind of maintaining those connections that way. It sounds like you had a lot of reasons not to keep going um, um, and, and, and manage to push through, which I'm, I know these two are certainly grateful for. And um, 
What was that? What was it like? What was the experience like sort of being the only one in the program kind of going all the way through? What, what was there support? Was it was it hard? What, what, what was what was that experience like for you? Um, you know, I think because I have almost always been the only one, I, I was used to it at that point. Um, and mm. that was probably a protective factor in, in many ways. Um, had right. an advisor in my first couple of years who wasn't very supportive. I'd maybe talk to them one or two times during the time that I was their advisee. And it wasn't until um, Dr. Matt Burns trans- transitioned to the university that I was like, hey, I think I like the research that he's doing, you know, academic interventions. I don't want to focus so much on the, the bad things that are happening in school to kids, but we mm. can prevent them a little bit. And so I enjoyed that work. Um, but I think, again, that sort of affirmed for me that school psychology, like you can't intervention your way out of like racism and oppression. And, and there are other things that we can do. So that's kind of also what led me to my dissertation topic. But once I was under the advisement of, of Matt, I think I felt a lot more supported um, just in terms of being given more leadership roles, being listened to. Um, getting being funded for conferences was a huge thing for me. Like I know students mm-hmm. like go to conferences, but I hadn't been one till I was a third year. And, and like in our, I was kind yeah. of looked down upon because it was a very competitive, like research heavy program, but it's because I didn't have a supportive advisor prior to that. Um, so mm-hmm. just even being able to like get funded for those sorts of things were all very, um, helpful in me realizing I have a place in school psychology. And I think that's really what made a difference is like people actually supporting, like, we want to hear your work. We think this is important. I'm going to put you up for this award or this uh, grant or scholarship. Like I'll write you a letter for X, Y, and Z. And it's those like kind of like everyday sort of like actions that I think were really helpful and kind of pushing me through to the end. Well, that's cool. And, and, and what was sort of, why did you want to be like a professor versus a, a practicing school psych? Yeah, that's a good question too. Uh, I always told Matt that I wanted to be um, a practitioner and he's like, no, well, you don't want to do that. I'm like, yeah, I do. I want, I like, I want to help kids. I love, I love working with kids, the adults, you know, I'll figure out how to like deal with the adults, but like, I want to work with kids. And he's like, I promise you in like two or three years, you're going to be burnt out. You're not going to want to do it. And I like, I didn't believe him. And he always talked about this sphere of influence. So he's like, your sphere of influence in a school is so small. I'm like, well, I'm not the type of person where I want my sphere to be super large anyway. So I think that's fine. Right. Um, and then when I got into practice, um, I really, really enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. And I had gotten the advice to, to stay for three to five years and then determine if, if it was for me. But an opportunity to work at IU came up because they were doing what's called a strategic hire, where they were targeting folks that they wanted to apply for the job. So it wasn't a widely available position. Um, And at the time, the program wanted somebody who was doing social justice work, whatever that sort of looked like. Um, And I I never really thought I could be a professor. Um, And so when that came up, um, Matt, again, said, hey, you need to do this. I'm going to put your name forward because they're asking for names. Um, and I think if he hadn't, I'd probably still be working in the schools. But because um, I was able to talk um, to Dave Schreiberg, who was the program director at the time, and 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 we we connected kind of right away, um, did an interview, and ended up going okay because I got hired. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's 
um, I forget your original question, but that's kind of. Um, no, that was how I answered it. Practice um, to, it, to a professor. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. And, and it sounds like um, um, you've all, in, in some ways, been a little lucky in terms of finding an advisor that wanted to support you. That sounds like that's something that's kind of rare. Would you say that's the case? Yeah, and it should be a given, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. So, but I think you're right in that. And that I at least for me, I, 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 I got lucky. I, I, don't I think I would yeah. say I was lucky, but I also think that, like deep down inside, this this path and this journey was prayed for me in some way by by those who who know me and who love me and um and so because mm. there's luck but there's also like okay I'm being pushed in this in this way I I have these feelings about this journey that I there's nerves there's anxiety there's stress mm. there's overwhelm but at the same time it's like this is all coming to me for a yeah. reason like and it's just like curiosity sets in and then motivation, inspiration sets in. And then it's, then it all makes sense when like your loved ones are, are so proud of you and they see your strength and mm-hmm. you uh, see their strength because they are so proud of you. And so it's just like this whole interconnected <laughs> feeling. Um, and so, yeah, I would say luck, but I would also say it's more than, more than that. I feel like there's definitely something in the universe that's also going on yeah yeah that makes sense uh i think what i'm also thinking about is is because you know i've heard a lot about for both black and indigenous students you know they're often not encouraged to kind of go forward they're not encouraged to take you know like ap classes or things like that or like so often right from you know sort of kindergarten they're 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 placed in a box of 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 less than and so it's it's pretty common for those adult sort of supports to not have high expectations um um, and so but it sounds like at least you two were able to at least get one or two adults that were you know, uh, willing to look past sort of the, 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 the you know, the, the, the standard of, of sort of racism against folks and, uh, and, 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 and then see an opening there. Um, so what, 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 what do you folks mean by what, what decolonizing school psychology? I know that's a big term. You're probably expecting the question, um, but, but what's that about? It sounds like a, a pretty, um, you know, lofty goal. <laughs> um, I've thought about this a lot because I think language is really important. Um, and mm. I often will say like language is medicine in many ways. Like it's healing for those who don't mm-hmm. know their language. Um, it's healing for like me just to listen to Brianna and Kiba speak their language and introduce themselves. Like, so language is medicine in different mm-hmm. ways, but there's also like good and bad medicine, right? Um, so I've been thinking about this a lot yeah. and I use the term decolonizing specifically to refer to education versus school psychology. Because I don't mm-hmm. think at this point um, that we are in just in society that school psychology can be decolonized at the moment, right? Because it's so colonial in terms of 
thinking about kids through a deficit focused lens, um, this like push to evaluate, evaluate, evaluate every kid, um, bringing in parents as in this hierarchical way versus as true partners, right? So there's many ways in which it is, it is so colonial that I don't think it'd be decolonized. Um, mm. So when I think about education, I think about education more in a decolonial way because education systems did exist prior to contact. And so I, and so mm. I think that's more feasible in my mind, whereas school psychology, that's not the case, right? So I don't, I don't know. Yeah. But I think it can be indigenized and what I mean by that is I think we can infuse different ways of knowing and being from our all of our cultures and, and life experiences in a way that's appropriate to support not only Native kids, but all kids. Um, so I think for decolonizing for me to kind of get back to the original question, sort of going back to this like original uh, way prior to contact and sort of taking out all of the colonial mm. harm for something and getting back to like it's sort of pure or... Mm. Um, and I see the two certainly as complementary. So I don't think that we can have decolonization without indigenization and vice versa. Um, cause I don't think you can just take out the colonial harm and then not do anything with it. Right. You have to, there's like things you got to put back into it to sort of, mm. um, but again, that's, that's just my view on, and, and how I'm like currently thinking about it at this time. And I certainly think that it will change, you know, ask me in a year and I'm, I'm sure yeah, it will be different. No, I would say, and just to add I like, to that, I, right, I, I like think, that. you know, when we I mean, look at the Sorry. history of colonialism, oppression, marginalization, and the historical as well as the ongoing effects, and how does that affect us systemically, you know, especially through education. And so similar to what Lisa was saying in terms of like decolonizing education is probably also the area of my focus and school psychology fits within that, but it's a lot bigger, right? And so I think with you know, decolonizing education from a tribal sovereignty standpoint, it's really, you know, each nation experienced different degrees and levels um, between, you know, colonizers and settlers. And so each, you know, each area, each people in different people that you speak with may have different answers based on what, you know, their experiences are both individually and collectively as a community. And so for here in, in my area and how I grew up and kind of the conversations that we're having is, you know, how do we, how do we write our own narrative? Because so much has been forced, right? There's so many from the federal government saying, this is how, you know, if you set up your government, this is how, this is the standard that you use for education. So much of that has been forced and oftentimes at a very strong disadvantage for our people here um, in South Dakota. And so a big, mo a big movement in my eyes is really about like, how do we reclaim and we shape it based on what we see fit? What are our values? What do we want for our people, for our community, for our future, and for those who come later on in life? And so really trying to, I, I, in, in a large way, like we're really trying to develop our own large strategic plan that we are collectively building. And education is a very strong component of that. And so it's really going through like, what do we value as a people? And what does that, what does education look like in our area? Um, and I think that's the biggest part is so that we can, you know, like what Lisa mm. was saying, right? Like language is a big shift um, for us. And we're wanting to say, how do we incorporate more aspects of language as, you know, ideally so that everybody's becoming speakers again. 
how do we incorporate like our our ways of relating because kinship is very strong mm. and so kind of what lisa was talking about like right like with the, with psychology school psychology you know um you know my son's on an iep and i get a paper sent home asking interview questions and send it back send out these rating scales um but for a lot of people in my community that doesn't work the way that you do is you go and you visit and you sit in relationship with each other you ask those conversations and again not just focusing on the deficits but like what are the strengths that they're bringing and how do we how do we elevate those strengths so for me that's how i conceptualize decolonization as well hmm. Yeah, I like that. I, I, I think your point about, uh, well, first, the, the point sort of separating decolonization and indigenizing is sort of decolonization is removing, indigenizing is adding. I think that's a, that's that's helpful. But also, I think, Kiva, your point about, um, you know, how every, how every tribe and nation is so different. Um, uh, in a lot of ways, and and something I've learned recently, you know, uh, which is is even this sort of term indigenous is kind of a, a colonial term because it's it's basically lumping everybody into one category, um, and uh, and it, it can, I, I can see how it can be not helpful to sort of you know have a one look for a kind of a one size fits all way to sort of indigenize things because it's going to be so different for community community. And so it, it makes sense to me how each of you are, is really wanting to do work in your own home communities um, and, and really kind of do that piece. And I guess that's kind of, I guess, getting more indigenous folks, you know, indigenous school psych sort of students and folks kind of doing that work so they can kind of each go back to their own kind of home communities and nations and tribes and be able to sort of do that work locally is probably the only real way this is going to happen is that fair yeah i think i think so um but i also think there's something to be said for like um collaboration across nations and mm. tribal um sort of movements happening and i think and yeah. right, I think the grassroots individual sort of community stuff needs to be happening, but also more of these like local networks in, in tangent um, with those also need to be happening. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of kind of those, I, I, you, you, you referenced the, uh, the uh, Indigenous American subcommittee. What, what is that? Um, so this was a subcommittee that's part of the Multicultural Affairs Committee through the National Organization or the National Association of School Psychologists. So that's like that's okay. our national org for all school psychs. Um, right. Different from APA. So APA American Psychological Association focuses on like doctoral level clinicians and researchers. NASP is different in that it the, it's focuses on practice of school psychologists researchers mm -hmm. that are involved but the, much of the focus is practice how do we inform practice how do we make it better improvements you know in science and all that mm -hmm. practice mm -hmm. um so within that there's a multicultural affairs committee and we are a subcommittee of of that and then there are other affinity committees as well um within that so there's the api um the african diaspora committee and and, and many others um, so what we do, and this, our subcommittee was founded by Paul 
Dauphiné, who is um, Turtle Mountain, I believe, in North Dakota. Um, and so he's a retired school psychologist, um, but he had created the group. And then it's, um, I think he was, he was leading it for many, many years. And Elvina has led it for many, many years as well. And then uh, most recently, prior to me, was Jacob Price. And there may be some people in there that I'm missing, but I just don't have sort of knowledge of the, of the group that far back. Um, and so really what we do is advocate for and try to make visible indigenous issues in school psychology with the main focus of children mm. and families. Okay. And then there's a, is there a sort of student version of that? Did I read about a student indigenous American subcommittee or is that something that I just made up? I think up? you made that up. No. That's just something I just made up, right? No, we have, okay. we have like a student uh, early career rep, which is what Brianna is currently in that position. And then Kiva was. Yeah. You want to talk about that, Brianna? Well, I think Kiva will have a better answer because I'm just getting started and she was able to share with me. Um, but I just am working with Lisa as um, more closely with the functions of uh, um, the, the subcommittee in general. Um, also looking at the strategic goals that we, um, as we come together as a group, we go through different goals that we might have and just um, keeping up with them. Um, and then also just outreach um, with those in NAS, but also um, with those who might be coming into school psychology who are interested in um, the Indigenous American Subcommittee. Um, and then Kiva, did you want to add anything else? Yeah, no, I think, I think, I mean, it could be a lot of different things, right? Like, I think that ultimately, it's really about building capacity um, and leadership, you know, like Lisa talked about, like, how do we increase um, the amount of Indigenous school psychologists? Mm. And, you know, not only for those who, like, are in my community, like I said, when I came, there there's not anybody here who does this role. Also, we have so many of our relatives who live in urban areas who are also not having their needs met. Um, and so I think it's just about building capacity to increase rec recruitment, ideally to influence um, our leadership level of trainers of school psychologists. So like our professors, exactly what Lisa's doing. And so I think this is a way to kind of help, you know, ideally build that and change what it could look like for featured Indigenous students coming in. And I will, I will say that Brianna has been instrumental in the talks or the consultations that that her and I are doing with NAS at large in terms of our annual convention. So then consulting with them, as I as I already said, about land acknowledgement and what that should look like. And I feel like we've been doing the hard work of pushing them to think deeper about it and do more about it rather than just read a statement. Um, and the work's been been quite difficult mm. to sit in a room with, you know, a bunch mm. of settlers who don't understand our, our history and why it's so important to us and, and that sort of thing. Um, but I just want to name that she has been really critical in, in those conversations to bring a perspective that I don't think folks, many folks in that room have, have ever heard. Mm. Mm. So what, what does recruitment look like then for 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 indigenous schools like so like what do you do how do you do that uh brianna had a beautiful answer for this when we did that podcast um at nath mm -hmm. i don't know if you remember 
that, Brianna, but I'll, I'll just speak a little bit and then maybe you can think. <laughs> um, I think I've been thinking about this a lot and I'm trying to think now that I'm closer to more um, like TCUs, tribal colleges, universities, I think that's one way we can certainly do it, right? That makes a lot of sense. Um, but I also think what Kiva has alluded to, I think what we all been sort of saying is like a common thread amongst our responses is this idea of like kinship um, because graduate school can be so exclusive and, and, and lots of folks want to gatekeep and we don't have the knowledge in our communities oftentimes of how to, how to reach some of these higher places in special education, that those kinship networks really come into place um, because of that. And, and so like having relationships with um, people is really important. Um, like I, I knew Brianna and Kiva through like other, other folks and, mm. and trying to like, so I had a relationship with Brianna prior to asking her, Hey, do you want to come to our doc program? Right. I don't think that's something I could have asked her when I first saw her, just because I want there to be more native, um, doc students or native professors. I, for me, it wasn't appropriate to be like, Oh, I see a native person. I want them to come to my program. Right. I had to like have a relationship with her and same for so some of the other students in her cohort, I, I'm thinking of Star Green Sky, who is in another is another amazing student that I was trying to get to, to come to Minnesota, right? But I think the relationship piece of that was much more important for me. And then taking no for an answer when folks don't don't want to go to grad school, right? Mm -hmm. um, but like I think to make a long answer short, relationships are a big thing when there's not currently a a, a pipeline that's making it super easy for native students to, to get into school psychology programs. Mm -hmm. And just to add to that, you know, to think broader, broad as well, right? Like we, you know, we say Indian country is small. And so when you meet somebody, you ask, Oh, do you know, so-and-so, so-and-so, and so-and-so, and, -so, and, -so, and you, you know, at some point you do come across that commonality. So with that, mm -hmm. like comes along like experiences, right? And so, you know, in my community, for example, there's a school here in South Dakota where for about 40 years, native, um, their native attendance from those down. And part, and part part of that was related to some racial incidences that um, a student faced there, and it wasn't handled appropriately by the university. And those stories mm. came back to our communities, and people decided not to apply there anymore. Um, and so kind mm. of the same thing when I was going for undergrad, one of the strengths was that there were a, there was a large Native population, and a lot of them had positive experiences and things to say, even though they had difficulties. So you know that attended that university and kind of mentoring in some ways other students who were too of like what my experience was like, and so you know I think you know those um, you know sitting and talking story with one another that influences what our people decide to do as well. Um, and so I think sometimes when a lot of our predominantly white institutions have, um, you know, don't respond appropriately to certain like microaggressive or overtly racist acts, um, you know, when people don't feel like they're supported in their classes, like those, those messagings get back to, you know, the, the communities. And so that does play a large part in, well, what, how do, you know, as, if I'm applying, do I want to go to somewhere like that? And sometimes it is no. And I think many um, Indigenous students um, don't want to leave their community for mm. all 
had mentioned as well. And I don't know if you already said this, Kiva, because it, it cut out just a little bit. So forgive me if I'm like repeating some of what you're saying. Um, but I think universities and colleges have to think more about that and have to get creative in, in their offerings, right? So mm. with being such a huge thing now, how can like we can essentially make our education and our courses um, available to everybody, right? But I think we we being universities, because I'm part of the system as well, have to grapple with the capitalism, right? Like folks want to make money off their courses. Universities yeah. want to make money off enrollment. So there's gotta have to be some sort of way to get creative with those that like kind of balancing those two agendas, right? But for me, it seems easy to just offer courses via Zoom. Um mm. work the practicum, right? Like because in school psychology, we often have practica that they have to do. They have direct services with kids and families. And so but all of those to me seem so easy to work around. And I think it's just mm. a matter of like administrative folks sort of getting on board and um, like di- uh, leaning into that creative thinking, right? Mm. Because you want to stay in their communities. Um, <clears throat> and oftentimes tribal colleges might not have like the resources or the people to, to like provide or offer some of those things. And so we often have to leave, to leave our home to do that. And so, yeah, getting creative about how people don't have to leave their homes in order to get uh, a degree then. Yeah, just to add to what Lisa's saying, right? Like that, I think that's part of the decolonization process as well is like, you know, there's a, a concept of like the individual versus the collective and like, how do we adjust the schedules? How do are we more accommodating and inclusive in a lot of ways? And I think those are diff- very different comp- or very essential components to the work that we're doing as well because we're really trying to break down some of those barriers that have been in place for so long and haven't allowed us to succeed or thrive in those things. Hmm. So you referenced a couple of times these uh, tribal colleges and universities. Can you tell me a little bit about those? Is that is that sort of sort of a similar concept to the sort of the the, the HBCUs for for Black folks? Yuba, you might have more experience with those than I. I've been mostly in predominantly in PWIs. Right. Um, yeah, so I would Kiva? say like um, similar, you know, so very similar in, in, in terms of like why they, you know, came about. I think with, mm. um, right, with, with PCUs or tribal colleges and universities as well, there's that tribal sovereignty component, right, especially mm. in um, like nations such as mine who had made treaties, right? So within those treaties was that component of education as well. And so it became a sovereign um, expression of, well, we're also not only going to just have a TCU, but we're going to really build it along what the tribal values are. And so I did my master's through the Lakota Leadership um, and Lakota Leadership and Organization program at Oglala Lakota College. And for me, that was important because so much of my, you know, my undergrad experience was um, we we talked, you know, learned, you know, Western, Western education. And we thought really critically, you know, we had a Native American studies program, but a lot of it was from the idea of like um, broad pan Indianism us collectively across, you know, all 578, 76 nations, um, you know, and we're kind of grouped into this one and we're trying to kind of break down these different experiences. And what Oglala Lakota College does and, and my community is we talk about the same issues, but we talk about it from the context and the impact it has in our community, for our people, for our nation. And so it's a lot more, um, I would say, tailored to meet the, the local needs 
Um, and, you know, you're really working through ideally like a lot to help develop solutions. And again, that's just my experience from my, from my PCU, but um, I'm sure there are very others who are operating very similarly as well. Mm-hmm. And there aren't any school psych programs. And there aren't any school psych programs at any of these yet, or not, not, not that yet. I'm aware of. Mm-hmm. I think for HBCUs, I think there's maybe only two programs in yes. Howard, and I can't remember the other one. Yeah, but Bowie, I think. So, yeah. and I also wanted to mention, like, like um, for like Haskell University, like that used to be a boarding school, and so there's also the it's. The, mm are tied to to that like colonial history as well um that that make learning on those grounds like just a different experience i think yeah wow i'm so so, so sorry so the, the, this this university is on the same grounds as the presidential boarding school was i think it's the same i think some of it's the same building so if, if brianna you know um yeah so i think part of the building structure is like actually the same which is not uncommon right so like really? i was I was just in Sisseton, um, and they had an orphanage there, um, and they had turned that into a park, right? So it's like kind of reclaiming some of these lands and, and some of the ways that, that we've lost children and, um, you know, our future in many ways, like we're trying to reclaim some of that. This is a, it's a different conversation, probably not for today, but I definitely hear a lot in, in my neck of the woods. I'm, I'm, I'm in, up in Canada and uh, about you know, communities wanting these buildings either torn down, um, you know, maybe turned into parks and things like that, um, or, or you know, more kind of like museum type places to sort of teach the history. But I, I, I've yet to hear about, at least locally, about folks repurposing the buildings for for continued use. So that must be that would be an interesting experience for folks. Yeah, and that might be inaccurate, but I. I'm fairly certain I've read that somewhere. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm sure it is. I mean, I mean, yeah. Go ahead, Kiva. Oh, I'd say yeah. I think Haskell still has a couple of the same buildings that were, you know, there historically as well. And sometimes I think what is also available, right? Like getting new buildings. Like in my area, it's really rural, so getting new buildings yeah. is not not really feasible with a quick time. So sometimes it's kind of also out of necessity. Yeah, that's that's what I was going to ask. Is 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 that probably part of the part of the reason? Because not everyone has the money to build a whole new building, and if you've got a building there already, then you can repurpose it for sure. Wow. Um, thinking about a bit about uh, kind of why you know why there's a need for indigenous school sites in schools, and and so I wanted to know a little bit about sort of. I've talked a lot on the podcast about the experiences of black students in schools and, and kind of, you know, a lot of the pieces going on there. I had a re- really good conversation with uh, uh, Naomi Teixeira. She was an indigenous uh, Hawaiian um, behavior analyst who works in kind of culturally based indigenous education there and kind of some neat kind of school, school formats that they're doing down there um, uh, on this work. But I'm, I'm wondering about sort of, what are some of the sort of, you know, maybe using language from 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 one of the papers you did, Lisa, the 
kind of the consequences of colonialism for youth in schools? Like, what are, what are some of the things that are sort of more specific to Indigenous youth that that folks, you know, need to be thinking about? Um, I think. Um, wow, I, you brought me back to that paper. That was like a tough. That was a tough paper to write. Um, yeah. I think probably the overarching thing that you'll hear a lot or read a lot in the literature um, for people who do this work is the concept of in, intergenerational trauma or historical trauma. Sure. That manifests in many different ways, right? And um, and that could be mental health um, issues, that could be behavioral stuff. But I think that is something, if you're asking about like uniqueness, for lack of a better mm -hmm. word, um, that is something specifically from boarding schools, but also like, um land allotment and like starvation experiments and and mm. like i think um and just like the rampant violence against native women and girls um mm. i think that all sort of feeds into to that intergenerational trauma piece that we see um so i think what in terms of like how that's different is like how we approach that's going to be different with with native kids right because it it should um, be more cultural, um, in our approach. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if that's, if, if, um, that's maybe going on a tangent a little bit, but I think intergenerational trauma and I'll kind of leave it there to see if Brianna or Kiva want to add more to that. The third secret word is tribal. Can you, can you, um, rephrase your question again? Well, I guess I'm just trying to, I don't know, maybe this isn't the right question, but I'm trying to sort of uh, learn a little bit about just for folks, you know, that, you know, may not be an indigenous, indigenous school psychologist and they might just be regular, you know, school psychologists working in schools or teachers or whoever. Um, um, what are kind of some of the sort of consequences of colonialism for the indigenous youth in schools? What are sort of the, the you know, what, what are some things that you know, folks really need to be considering when when working with indigenous I think, uh, schools. No, you can go ahead. You can go ahead. I'll go after. So one of the things that kind of oh, go ahead, Des, or go ahead, Bree. Okay, I'll share quickly. Hmm. I think like no, you go ahead. When I was growing up in elementary and middle and high school, there were like four other Native students that I knew of. And uh, we weren't in the same classes, uh, but we saw each other um, in the hallways and the mm. playground. And uh, what, what, what happens when you enter school, when you enter a white space is like, is like, you, I almost felt self-conscious. I was like, I'm not like, no one knows me. I don't know if I know what I'm doing. Um, I don't know how to talk to people and, and, uh, that sort of thing. And so I was like, what will people think of me if I go to this other native child and talk to them? Like, what do, what will people think of me if I play with them? I read, like, you know what I mean? Like there's so many, there were so many white students, children around me that I was like, what are they going to think of me? Are they going to be mean to me? Like, are they going to tell their parents mm. something? Are they going to perceive something that I do behaviorally as like 
Mm. not good and then telling me to the teacher. So it's all this, like these, uh, intruding like thoughts coming in, uh, like, am I getting, am I going to get in trouble? Like, will I get kicked out? Like, it's like literally so many mm. thoughts. And so, so like things that I can think of is like, if, if I was encouraged to be, to hang out with them, um, by, by teachers, by eras, by administration. Like if I was, if there was a safe place for me to feel like I mm. could be with them, like that's like, that would have been really important to me. Um, mm. and so like, even if there is no intention of a colonialism, like impacting a child, like even if it's not over and it's like on purpose it's still there because you're entering a setting that was not built for you right like I when I lived on the Navajo Nation at my grandparents homestead I was outside most of the time like I was herding sheep going to the cornfield like riding horses getting water um Mm. like all these things and then going into um a typical traditional school where you're like in a box, maybe some windows, you have to sit at a desk, you have to do, you have to follow the rules, follow the expectations. Like, it's almost like your Mm. autonomy is taken, not almost, your autonomy is taken away from you. And then you're like, I don't know what to do then. So I'm just going to sit here and be quiet and and listen. Um, And so even though it might not be intentional, it is, it's there. And so I think, that has created a lot of maybe like emotional reactions from me, behavioral reactions from me, um, cognitive reactions from me. And Kiva earlier was talking about executive functioning. Like if I don't feel safe in a space that I'm at, I'm there's no way I'm going to mm. listen and retain and uh, make connections with the information that's right. coming to me. And so, and so like, those are the consequences, right? Like I'm, I, Throughout grad school, I had to remember, I had to retrain my brain in how to utilize these executive functioning skills in a positive way and in a way that would work for me. Like even in undergrad, I feel like all of that was like thrown all over the place. And so, so those are the consequences as far as like just something small that I wanted, that I think I want, I thought of when you asked that question. Yeah, exactly. Right. And that that's that's the whole intention, right, of the relationship between, you know, United States and the tribes and the nations here. Right. Was, you know, eradicate, um, kind of get rid of get them out of the way of progress. And so, you know, the consequence is, you know, because of our numbers dropping so much, you know, being roughly two percent of the population is erasure and hidden. And you see that in research, right? Like the data set that I'm talking about, like it was, it, I haven't found, I've only found one study that focused on an indigenous subsample um, out of the whole bunch that are around, you know, Caucasian differences, white, black, Hispanic. Right. Um, and so, you know, you see that in the data. And if the data is supposed to influence how we practice and how we incorporate within the education system, then that's not happening for us. And so then you have mm. issues where 
um, not only like biases and prejudice and microaggressions make their way, but then also just not understanding or being even willing to understand what can we do different? And that's that's a very broad generalization because there's definitely teachers who are out there, um, educators who are taking that time. Um, but a lot of our experiences are really about, you know, not, nobody really taking that time to sit, to learn, to relate. And, you know, things that I do with the students are, again, it was like kind of being that person that I wish I would have had more of um, because I also know that like what that does for me. And so like building that relationship with students and their families um, and elevating their voices because a lot of times, um, you know, <laughs> because of the different values, the different systems that we are navigating, some of our families, um, you know, they might have questions, but they don't want to look, you know, for lack of a better word, they don't want to look dumb. So they don't ask those questions. They don't feel safe to bring up their concerns. And so then what happens is that we keep perpetuating things that are probably not working. Um, Mm. And so, right. So that's kind of part of what we're doing too, is trying to change that so that we can help elevate and bring those voices centered and highlight the needs. And so, you know, I had us uh, on my internship, an example, um, there was a, an administrator, who, you know, he said, Kiva, you're native, right? And I said, yes. He said, well, do they care and value education um, where you're from more than they do here? And right, there's, there's like so much to unpack in that statement wow. of, um, of, okay, if they're thinking like this and, then that kind of explains why probably some of the things that are happening are happening in the school. Some of the behavior, some of the attendance mm-hmm. is because those pieces are incorporated. And, um, you know, so it, it, in, in my role of who I am, like I have to take a breath and think about, okay, do I want to address this? Right. Because sometimes like it's exhausting when you're one of the only indigenous native people in those rooms and it's like, do I have, do I have the capacity for this? Am I able to break this down? And a lot of times I feel like we do it um, because we think about, well, who else will do it? How do we help change mm-hmm. that? And that can be very tiresome. Yeah. Thank you, Kiva. I also mm-hmm. want to add, I think this is a great representation or like example of why I wanted these two like amazing women on the podcast with me is because mm-hmm. they're in the gaps of what I don't say or like yeah. what you know, and they have their experiences to speak to as well, which I think um, are very different from mine, but also like gives an example of like what this could look like in, in many different people, right? We don't have a, totally. a sort of like life path necessarily, but I also wanted, so that's just an aside. And I also wanted mm. to think about mascots, right? Like, mm. The only group of people that I'm aware of who, yep. who have to attend, have to attend schools, right? Because it's mandatory. Mm-hmm. Um, where our likeness is used as to depict non-humanness, right? It's dehumanizing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that impacts students' self-esteem, that impacts their conceptions of themselves in the future, right? Um, Stephanie mm-hmm. Fry of mm-hmm. that work, and so has Joseph Gahn, who are both native um psychologists. Yeah. Um, so that's still a huge thing. I think when Kiva and I were writing that communique paper, there were still 1,200 high schools that were using indigenous mascots. Um, and, and granted, some of those, like I can think of like University of Florida, I know has consulted and gotten permission from the Seminole Nation to actually use that image, but not everyone is doing that, right? So that's mm-hmm. all. Um, 
policies about hair and dress. So like kindergarten native boys' hair being cut by their teachers because they wow. don't think they should have long hair, right? And that's still happening. Yeah, and that's still happening. I think I, I an article for a talk maybe from like 2019 or 2021, something like that. Um, and and th- those things are also happening to our black brothers and sisters too, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's like, there's um, similarities in many ways, but also I just want to also speak to like the mismatch between our identities and the people who are teaching us and the people who are mm-hmm. yes. um, our administrators and even like what our custodians look like, right. And our lunch ladies and, and those folks too, like there's a mismatch often or kids are only seeing themselves represented in positions that other people are saying are less than. Mm. Um, and I think just overall, like this absence of our epistemologies, right? This erasure of our ways of of knowing and being, our identities not being affirmed, um, or counseling not being utilized to actually support a positive like cultural identity, um, because people just don't know how to do it because they don't learn in grad school how to work with native people because yep. they're just erased from from many uh, curricula. Um, so I, I just wanted to add all of that. Um, as, as you both were talking, I was like, okay, and all of these things too, right? Not to, to dwell on, on all the negative sort of aspects of school, but. No, and that's, and that's a great paper that you wrote. And I'll, we'll, we'll link, we'll link them in the show notes because it really breaks down sort of each of those pieces you were talking about. And I know I've, I've been trying to get Dr. Freiberg on um, um, to talk about uh, the mascot imagery, um, but it sounds like uh, she talks about that a lot. And so I don't, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know if I'm, I'm at the level of the people she's talking to, but uh, uh, working on it. Um, um, yeah, no, I mean, there's so many of these like components that I think folks don't think about. Are, are there, are there examples of, um, of, schools that are doing more of that kind of culturally based indigenous kind of education or is that something that's we're, we're not there yet uh i think we're definitely there um we've i think we've been there for many decades actually hawaii yeah. a really good immersion program and they've seen some um some really good outcomes in, in their school i forget yeah. i forget the, i don't want to to mispronounce because language is important yeah. Um, there's a school in Hawaii. I worked when I was a, a school-based practitioner in Alaska. I worked for the Yani Da'a Tribal School mm. um, in Chickaloon Village. And they have an amazing little school up there um, that I got the privilege to be a part of. So they have culture and language every day, twice a day. Um, and they do awesome. like an indigenized curriculum throughout their day. So they've done where they're doing like um, scraping seal skins and like learning their language from elders. I think most of their teachers are um, speak Atna or are Dina Aina is how they say it. Mm. Um, but they're, yeah. So it's, it's a really cool little school and there's, and it's K through 12. And wow. it's so it's a thing. They, they make meals together. They go on walks throughout the community. They have time throughout their weekly schedule always to go visit elders. So that the youth yeah. are always visiting with elders um, so I think that's a really great example. And then there, um, the tribal school that I did my dissertation in also is doing some of, of some of those things too, bringing in the community to talk about uses of the Buffalo, talking mm. about language, talking about history, um, even kind of like the, you go through the hallway and you see like medicine wheel or portraits of like really wow. important communities, stuff like that. So I think it's definitely happening and it's been happening for some time. Um, 
they're just tend to be in, in reservation communities in my experience. Right, right. And is, is there like, oh, so go ahead, Kiva. Yeah. Oh, I was going to say, and then there's like, you know, um, the NACA inspired schools. Um, I think they're originally out of the Southwest. I believe they are looking at expanding. Um, I don't know if they've officially expanded into South Dakota or where that's at there, but it's a charter school network um, that is also mm. incorporating aspects within, within that realm and like kind of going, you know, ideally like innovating um, education within those spheres. Um, so I'm not as super in-depth detail knowledgeable about it, but I know that though that's another avenue that is trying to infiltrate like um, more of that harder system network as well. Hmm. And I know as a result of the American Indian movement, because that was, um, well, started in prison, the, the thought of it, but then um, a lot of the organizing happened in Minneapolis. They had, um, oh gosh, I'm going to forget what they're called because I'm, I'm just on my learning journey with that. But they have... Um, they have some schools that came out of the movement essentially that serve this purpose of indigenizing education. I don't think that's what they were calling it back then, but mm. four of those still remain. And I'm actually trying to get connected with, with folks at those schools to, to learn a little bit more, but Oh, resistance schools, I think is what they were called. Really cool. Well, and then a, in my community, there's a private school um, that is, um, is Umbo Wichaxi, which means morning star. And it's a, it's a school for girls and they incorporate a lot of like knowledge, knowledge, spiritual teaching, ceremonial teachings in conjunction with like, you know, reading, writing. So ideally if you're doing like, say you're doing a science concept, you're learning that concept through an indigenous lens. Gotcha. So these schools still, you know, fit into the sort of colonial curricula expectations so they can get the high school diploma and you know it's be recognized and keep moving on yeah I think I think that's the balance right I think there's still that that give and take with many of these systems and and I think true decolonization will will we will have <laughs> that when there's not that give and take right when it's yes. just us existing without strings attached yeah yeah really cool so kind of just looking to I could talk to you guys for 17 more hours I mean I just have so much awesome stuff to share um uh what what kind of kind of message for 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 the listeners uh, folks maybe that are you know maybe indigenous folks maybe that are thinking about getting into school psychology or 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 getting into teaching uh what 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 kind of words of words of wisdom can you can you pass on um for me if if you're thinking about academia I, I it's feasible for everybody and I think when it's most meaningful and powerful for others is when you work from your lived experience and bring that into your work and it took me a lot a long time to sort of recognize that my strength is actually in the experiences I have and the identity I hold and the learning I'm doing um, and don't kind of measure yourself by what you know in, in comparison to others or what you don't know. Um, just kind of move from within who you are. And I think that's what makes can make you successful in any position that you want to be in. Nice. Brianna, Kiva? I'm still thinking. <laughs> the battle. 
Okay. Yeah. Okay. We'll go. Uh, You know, I think just um, obviously, you know, we need more native everything, right? And so, I I think it's just you know really find your why. Like, why are you doing the work? Because, um, and again, for me, it just has a lot a larger purpose and a larger meaning for the impact that we can have. Um, And you know, I don't think Mm -hmm. we always realize those those small things that we do that really make a difference. Um, and so just, again, just, you know, whatever it is, like we need, we need you in education and schools, doctors, dentists, and education is what we, you know, we teach all other professions. And so mm-hmm. I think that's like probably the, the best route is um, how can we make those changes? Um, for me, knowledge is power and being able to have, um, not just a seat at the table, but to be in charge of helping to, you know, serve what's on the menu, right? Is, is we're able to make those changes. Yeah, I think I would just, I would say, when you're ready, come find us, come talk to us. Um, yeah, I'm always just open to mm. talking and yeah. having that that conversation, answering the questions. Yeah. So. Awesome. No, I love that. That's simple and and exactly. I think what the reasons why a lot why all of you one of the reasons why all of you got into this was to add one one face one one person that that, that might be available to 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 be a model to be a mentor to be a you know, someone that looks someone someone that looks like me was able to do this. Maybe I can do it too, and 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 I'll do my best to help you through it. So that's really cool. I, I'm I'm super honored and humbled that you three decided to come on here, and I appreciate all the scheduling and whatever, and 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 making it work. For, um, uh, you know, it's it's been really awesome, and I really hope uh, there's so much more to this conversation, and I really hope. I can have one or all you back to to keep talking about it. Thanks so yeah. much. That'd be awesome. I I really enjoyed my time and yes, thank you for, thank thank you for, you all for, for doing it with me. It's always good to be in conversation with the two of you. Absolutely. All right. Thanks, everybody.